Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. I'm very happy to be back with you. I know we've had some guest hosts, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to John and uh, Zev. Uh, We have really a good show for you today. Um, It's a bit controversial. Um, You're going to hear some things, uh, a different perspective on addiction treatment and and on recovery, and I hope people will open their minds to other people's perceptions and to know that... um, this is America, and we can have a differences of opinions. So I'd like to welcome our guest today, which is um, Peter Ferenczi, who is a Ph.D. He's also, um, and he describes himself as a crack addict and alcoholic, and he has been doing a lot of research on um, treatment, and he's been giving a lot of thought to um, the progression of treatment, um, mostly in America, during the 20th century, and um, he's here to share with us his perceptions on um, why treatment is wrong and why treatment has gone astray. So welcome, Peter. Um, I'm hoping you can hear me well at this point. Yes, I can hear you. Thanks, Mary. Okay. So um, maybe you could share a little bit of your background with our audience and, and why you came to write uh, the book. Okay, fair enough. Um I actually, on the cover of my book, I'm a little more brazen. I identify as crackhead, <laughs> not as crack addict. Um, I make that move. Um, it's a political move. So my book is called Dealing with Addiction, Why the 20th Century Was Wrong. Now, <clears throat> I've been an academic for a long time, and I did struggle with um, alcohol addiction and with crack addiction. So I bring personal and research experience into everything that I write, everything that I say. I lost a couple of friends to overdose. I saw clearly that in each case, the governing approach to addiction was the cause. And somehow that just hit me hard. I was inspired to write a book. Um, That was in late August when my second friend died. By May in 2010, by May of 2011, my book was out. I mean, it was written and in print. It took me no time at all, eight months. And um, I've been doing the lecture circuit ever since. Um, I'm critical of the war on drugs. I'm critical of the way drug treatment is practiced. Basically, the whole 20th century approach to dealing with addiction, I take issue with. Now, um, to just clarify for me, um, are you in Canada or America? Because I see that you've... Well, I'm in Canada. I'm calling, you're, I'm, I called you from Toronto. Okay. And... Um, there's a different a different outlook on treatment in Canada, isn't there, than there is in the states? Um, it's it's a mixed bag. Um, Canada has more emphasis, probably, on harm reduction, but it depends where you go. Um, in small town Canada, it's very much abstinence oriented and twelve step, and in places like California and New York, <coughs> you see things changing. So. I wouldn't draw a too strict a line between Canada and the U.S. Okay. I always kind of thought they were much more comfortable with the harm reduction model. Well, overall, yeah. I just, like I said, I wouldn't generalize because, for instance, in Midwestern Canada, our Midwest is similar to the American Bible Belt. Maybe not as hardcore, but we have the similar patterns. We have the similar debates. 
going on here as, as, we, as in the U.S. Um, some places such as um, Vancouver are on the cutting edge with safe injection clinics. That's specific to Vancouver. But needle exchange has been going on all over the U.S., different cities, you know, to varying degrees. So we're all part of the same fight, really. Yeah. Um, I think that sometimes uh, when we when we look at people in recovery and we look at how um, treatment works, I mean, one of the things we know is um, that the people, there's a process to change, and very few people kind of have that sudden realization that, um, I want to be in recovery and that um, what I, what's going on for me isn't working for me, that it's a process. And that's one of the things that you talk a lot about is the process of recovery, that um, people modifying their use uh, is a good thing, which sometimes is characterized as not putting enough effort into it or not being serious. And so maybe you could speak a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, it is a good thing. If um, you talk to somebody at an AA meeting or at an NA meeting, they'll probably tell you that they did year for, most of them will tell you that for years they tried to stop and start, slow down here and there before they came around and got clean. Typically, when addicts make a decision to change, whether it's the addiction is booze, gambling, or dope, um, <clears throat> there is a process involved. It involves stopping and starting. It involves reductions. Anything you can do to push the envelope towards less use and less harm is in fact going to increase somebody's chances of maybe abstaining down the road. Or if not abstaining, then reducing their use to such an extent that it's less, um, far less harmful. I mean, abstinence isn't always a perfect model because even if you go to a 12-step fellowship like AA, for every person there with 20 years sober, you're probably going to see 100 who slip every four months. Now, every one of those people has basically reduced their use, drinking every four months instead of every day. So it's all, it has always been about reduction, but our system hasn't acknowledged that. Well, I think it's because our, our idea of success is too narrow in terms of, of treatment and recovery. Um, you know, you mentioned other chronic illnesses that, um, and, and I totally agree with this because when someone has heart disease and they drop out of cardiac rehab and they develop chest pain, they get rushed right into the emergency room and no one says to him, well, you dropped out of cardiac rehab and you're still smoking so we're not going to treat you. <laughs> they go right to the top of the list. That's right. We don't, whatever do, reason, yeah. we don't do that. No, we don't do that. And, and, um, and, and in other ways, too, what, the way we approach addiction is inconsistent with medical practice. If somebody were to have a leg injury and now is reduced to using a wheelchair, if that person were to get 80% of their walking ability back, we'd say, hey, that's fantastic. We can't say, you're not the sprinter you used to be, so you're a failure. And yet if somebody with an alcohol problem cuts their drinking down by 80%, getting drunk once every eight days instead of every night or whatever, something like that. Um, often it's just dismissed as a failure. An 80% increase improvement in any other medical condition is typically considered fantastic, but with addiction, anything short of total abstinence is often dismissed as a failure. And it does seem a little incongru incongruous, doesn't it? Excuse me? It does seem a little um, 
it's, out of um, whack, out of sync? It is out of sync. And um, I'll give you, um, I can explain how we got here. Um, aside from a whole bunch of stuff, you know, about, you know, moral, moral reasons, religious currents, and so on. I'll start this way. Think about the ideology of hitting bottom, the idea that an addict needs to hit bottom in order to get better. Now, that idea is just plain wrong. I'm going to explain to you why it's wrong, and I'm going to give you a bit of history on it so you'll understand how we got here. And then it'll make more sense how we got here and why we still cater to it. Here's a couple of examples I use. Let's take two tobacco smokers. They're both smoking, say, one or two packs a day, and they both want to quit. One is very happy at work, happily married. The other one is going through a divorce and very unhappy at work. You know, I know, and just about anyone who's struggled with tobacco or seen a friend do it can tell you that the happy camper is a better candidate for quitting smoking. Now, if you take that happy individual and they're not ready to quit, if we shove that person towards the bottom, we ruin that person's job or their, their marriage, we get them fired from work. Now, so-and-so is on the street. Is that person, because of this bottom, going to be more likely to quit smoking? You know, probably not. Now that somebody's on the street, the person will might even be picking butts off the sidewalk. But if you make somebody happier, they're more likely to kick. The truth with tobacco addiction is the exact opposite of the hit bottom philosophy that we've been fed for almost 100 years. And the same applies to other addictions. I'm going to give you a stark example, Mary. Here's one that I like to use because it brings the point home. Let's say you've got a young woman. She's 18 or 21. She's addicted to crack, heroin, or both. She's turning tricks. She's, doing, she's living that kind of life. If she's not ready to kick, people will typically say, that's because she has not hit bottom yet. Now, you know and I know that for this young lady, that so-called bottom will involve sexual assault and all kinds of beatings. And we have a system of place that seriously suggests that sexual assault and beatings are going to render a woman less likely to get high. I might ask your listeners to pause and consider how implausible that is. I have no desire right now to get high, but if I were sexually assaulted and beat up, my desire to do so would increase immediately. Now, <clears throat> think of it as we have a long history of punishing attitudes. You know that up until a few decades ago, it was accepted for parents to um, smack and hit their children. In fact, go back not too long ago, maybe 70 years, spare the rod, spoil the child was just common wisdom. If your son flunked out of law school, maybe it's because you didn't kick his butt hard enough or often enough. Isn't that the way people used to think? Pretty much. So the idea is that beating and degradation will turn this kid into a better person. Go back a little bit farther. The governing wisdom was that a man's prerogative was to hit his wife. That's just the way men thought. Maybe the women didn't agree, but they didn't get a lot of airtime. Uh, I'm even old enough to remember older guys sitting around and saying to each other, if your wife isn't the best of mothers or whatever, it's because you're not doing your job. I'm old enough to remember that kind of talk. The idea isn't just that somebody has it coming, but that somebody is going to be improved by degradation. We've gotten past this attitude one group at a time, women, children, people of a different sexual orientation, 
but the drug addict is still addressed with a mindset that used to govern the way we thought about children, the way we used to and think about to women, anybody on the wrong so end can... of a power of relation. If you I need think you to hold that thought so we can get to commercial. It's hitting bottom as Peter, an extension. I need you to hold that thought just so we can get to commercial. Okay, we'll be sure. Right back. Okay. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to our show today. Um, we're talking about uh, addiction treatment in the 20th century, and our guest today is uh, Peter Perenzi, who's a Ph.D., and he's sharing with us his perceptions of how um, addiction treatment got it wrong um, over the last 100 years. And um, what we were talking about in our last segment was this whole concept of hitting bottom and that um, sometimes... You know the thought that if you degrade somebody enough, then it's then they're going to have they're going to snap out of it and and want to get better. And I think um, our experience here at Westbridge has been the opposite: is that people have to there has to be something in it for them to give up their alcohol or drug. There, there has to be something in it for them to want to take their medication to manage their mental illness or to work on managing their mental illness. And the idea that we can get more with a carrot than a stick. Um, you know, is sometimes seen as enabling. It's sometimes seen as, um, you know, we're not holding tight enough boundaries. And um, I'm just wondering, Peter, when um, one of the things you talk about is um, abstinence is the only realistic solution, and you describe that as the biggest lie in the business. And well, maybe you could share with okay. that. Let's start with some lie. real numbers. Um, typically... Um, um, any, if you have experience in um, 12-step fellowships, AA or NA, or if you have experience with um, abstinence-based treatment, people can tell you that um, they're, gonna, they're likely to lose 19 out of 20 people who show up. 
Some treatment people are even brazen enough to say only one out of 20 of you is going to make it. And that's about right. Now, typically, if your standard for success is two years of abstinence and you throw 20 people at random at a treatment operation, you'll be above average if you generate one out of 20 success stories. If, however, your measure of success is serious reduction, then all of a sudden you start to realize. You know, I, I will appeal to the, to the reader's experience because many of them probably have attended 12-step fellowships or know people who have. If you go into the, an NA meeting or an AA meeting, a CA meeting, for every person there with 10 or more years abstinent, 20 years abstinent, you're probably going to see, I don't know how many, at least 20, maybe 50 people who slip every three, four months but keep coming back. Now, somebody who's slipping every three or four months, who used to use every day or almost every day, has reduced his or her drug use by well over 98% or alcohol use. That's a huge reduction. And in the real world, such cases of reduction outnumber cases of pure abstinence by a whopping margin. But they go unrecognized. We want an absolute perfect solution. We want someone to hit bottom, find God, and never touch a drop again. I'm sorry, that scenario is best suited to a B-grade film, Barry. In the real world, it rarely happens that way. People get better over time. It's like if you have a horrible relationship, you're not going to turn it into a lovey-dovey, smoochy paradise overnight. In a similar fashion, someone who's shooting up or getting drunk on a regular basis is unlikely to just up and kick overnight. But they might progressively cut back on whatever they're doing. And the long-term achievement might indeed be abstinence, or it might be such a severe reduction in use that they have their lives back. But imposing a standard that is known to fail in 95% of the cases is just plain bad medical practice. If you have cancer patients to a standard that 95% will never achieve, and you kicked everybody else out of the hospital, people would not consider you a good doctor. And yet, that's sort of what goes on in addiction treatment. And also, if we broaden our conception of recovery, Mary, this is important too. Over the last 20 years, we've become more and more aware that other things can be addictive, shopping, gambling, sex. If you take somebody, you look at um, people in recovery who might not have had a drop or not have done any drugs or any booze in the last 10 years. You look at those same people, and you'll notice one person just gambled away his or her paycheck and can't make rent. Um, one person is shopping way too much, and there's a guy over there who can't keep his pants on. Yeah, he hasn't had any drugs or booze in a long time, but he's going through his third marriage and his third divorce because other compulsions are kicking in. If we take a broad conception of recovery that includes all of somebody's destructive behaviors, behaviors that are just as devastating as um, drinking and drugging, then all of a sudden we realize that only angels and very special, weird people that you might see on TV are ever going to be seriously clean for 10 years. I'm sorry, but one person might slip up on the dope or the booze every three months. Somebody else might slip up on something else a broader conception of recovery that includes all those destructive behaviors. 
means that if you hold people to a pure abstinence principle, everybody's going to fail. So is it your belief that um, people cannot obtain recovery, total recovery? Total recovery? I mean, I, I don't really know what would we would even mean by total recovery. That's the honest truth. Is it possible for someone not to touch a drop for 30 years? Sure. Um, but what do we mean by total recovery? Bear in mind, um, some people hail Bill W. AA's founder has a model for total recovery. But Bill W. had problems with gambling. Bill W. had problems with sexually acting out. Bill W. did a lot of things he shouldn't do, even while he was clean and sober. Um, and bottom line is that we're all human, and everybody's got something wrong with them. Um, holding people to a pure standard or singling out substance abuse and ignoring all those other behaviors is simply unrealistic. Sorry, unless you're an angel or unless you're some kind of special being from above, over the next 10 years, you're going to be out of control in some way. Maybe it's yelling. Maybe it's worse. Maybe it's violence. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's, maybe it's compulsive eating. Uh, many people who kick their gambling problems that I've interviewed fall into patterns of compulsive eating. Yes, I'm glad they're not gambling. But if you look at a broad range of compulsions, you'll notice that the bug doesn't bite you here, it might bite you somewhere else. And some kind of pure life where nothing ever goes wrong, where you're never taken over by an obsessive behavior, is simply unrealistic. So I, I'd like to see the bar set in ways that are real, rather than in a way that's destined to make losers and failures out of everybody who goes to treatment. So how would you def how would how would you set the bar? What criteria would you set for the bar? Well, I'd say that um, recovery should involve living decently, not stealing, not lying, and being content. Um, how that's achieved for one person would be very different from how it is achieved for another. But I do think that we need principles that are far less rigid than the ones that have been in place for a long time. I'll remind you again that abstinence-oriented treatment loses 95% of its clients real fast. Uh, well, and I think one of the things that, that is, well, I think one of the great things that has happened, that I believe has happened over the last 20 years is, is the work that's come out of um, the University of Rhode Island on stages of change and how people change. And one of the things that they identified that, you know, only 20% of the population are in the action stage, so 20% of the people who join Gold's Gym are going to stay there or go to Weight Watchers or go to a self-help meeting or do whatever. They're really ready to to change those behaviors and, and to move ahead. The other 80% are in different stages of change. They're, they may be ambivalent. They may not have made a decision to change. They may just not think it's in their best interest, but somebody's forcing them to go. And But 90% of our treatment centers are geared towards the 20% of people in action. And I don't think we've established good treatment interventions to help people um, understand that it is in their best interest to maybe change their behaviors or maybe, um, you know, stop drinking, stop using, you know, stop gambling. And I think there's a challenge for the treatment profession is how do we expand our treatment interventions in a way that we're able to capture people 
can treat them like we would for somebody who is, you know, in the early stages of hypertension, diabetes, or um, cancer. Yeah, well, Mary, I, I'm really glad that you mentioned some of the research being done on stages of change because that is right on the money. Um, we try to identify what somebody is ready for, and we intervene at that person's level rather than at a level we wish to impose. Um, you know, many of the um, harm reduction initiatives going on right now in Vancouver, New York, and elsewhere involve just helping people who aren't ready to kick, but doing everything possible to make the using less dangerous. And if they're able at all to juggle some kind of education or some kind of employment with their using, it's promoted. Because when the stage of change kicks in, somebody with something going for them is more likely, is just more inspired. People respond better to positive inducements rather than to negativity. Typically, well, okay, how's this? Um, When we lose 19 out of 20 people, we blame the 19. We say they could have, they should have, and they would have. You know, right now, I believe that addiction is the only medical condition around where failure of intervention is consistently blamed on the patient. It's pretty true. That's very true. Um, I think the, the, other, the other side of that is that, um, you know, we have such a disparity of um, beliefs in the addiction treatment community that we can't get together and have a single message you know, we have um, all these competing interests and nobody is getting together and, and coming out with a single message. So it's really easy to fragment us. It's really easy for us to, um, to look like we don't know what we're talking about. Um, when, when we think about, we think about breast cancer, breast cancer advocates are all on the same page and it doesn't matter what type of breast cancer you have, whether you're male or female, everybody's talking the same way. But in addiction treatment, we don't have that. We have the the, um, the people who are abstinence only. We have the other people who are um, opiate replacement therapy. We have other people who are into harm reduction, and we have other people who are into smart recovery, and, and it goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And so we're not treating the brain as a disease that has multiple facets to it. We have these different camps who have their perspective, and so we can't get anywhere. Well, I would suggest that um, emphasis on, um, depending on the addict in question, but often issues, the bottom line, issues such as housing and infrastructure must come before before treatment. Okay, I think we're phasing up for a commercial now. Yes, we are, and we'll be right back after our next commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about addiction treatment, why the 20th century was wrong, with our guest, uh, Peter Florenzi, who's a Ph.D. and um, is talking to us from Toronto, um, Ontario, Canada. And before we went to break, we were talking about um, the different things that enable people to to get into recovery and to stop using. And um, there, you were alluding to this as well, and, and certainly the Housing First initiative has been very successful. Helping people get onto benefits before they stop using is very successful too. And um, I think while we were in commercial, Peter, you were talking a little bit about some of the other things that um, enable people to get into recovery. Yes, um, things like that are important. I mean, some people have decent homes, and this might not be an issue. Putting somebody in treatment and then sending that person back to a world where he or she has to sleep with a knife, you know, right next to them. That, that's not going to be conducive to staying off the booze or the dope. Um, if you level the playing ground with respect to housing, um, housing and social support and things like that, our best evidence would suggest that Yes, attending treatment might knock your chances up by one or two points, but it's a minor consideration. You know, something that I often remind people of is that if you had a habit in 1890, whether it's alcohol, opiates, or cocaine, your chances of kicking weren't all that much different from what they are today. Our treatment efforts only tweak a process that is largely independent of all of our efforts. It involves changes. People mature out of their addictions over time. Readiness to change goes as it does. Studies suggest that um, people who make hard decisions to change will, on average, spend nine years in an in-between trouble, maybe using on occasion, maybe stopping for two weeks and then going hard for three weeks. And we say, well, this person should stop now. Well, the fact is they don't. Um, Often it takes nine years to shake it all out of you. I mean, it might take only one, one or two months for one person. For somebody else, it might be 18 years. For a third person, it might be never. But those are the averages we're coming up with. But here's some... Um, how, how do you come about... I mean, I'm just kind of curious. How did you come about those averages? 
Oh, well, this, I work for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. So they do a lot, they do a lot of um, longitudinal work, basically following people over the years. Somebody shows up at their door, and um, you, you interview that person. Okay? And you, you keep track of this person who keeps coming back in and out. And it's not perfect, but the Center for Addiction and Mental Health is huge. And they've done huge studies. We're talking about following thousands and thousands of people over the last 25 years. And typically, your story is one of stopping, starting, slowing down, cutting back, flopping, getting a job for six months, losing that job, and whatever. And all of these people who have it together today, you know, on average, spend about nine years flopping in the in-between place. That's just an average. You know, you... you, um, You know, sometimes, you know, we speak about enabling. And all harm reduction efforts can be derided as enabling. Um, One of my chapters actually discusses enabling. In my book, I say that enabling is often the only solution. Helping people out doesn't get them to stay in their addictions longer. That's a myth that started, and it's a myth rooted in punishing attitudes. The idea is that um, if somebody won't kick, maybe you know, a few more broken fingers or a bit more degradation will increase that person's chances of kicking. But what's something we know about the human condition is that people respond to degradation by degrading themselves further. Um, abused people often go back to their abusers and so on. It, so it doesn't work out that way. <clears throat> but I will point out that, um, you know, all this talk about codependency, we've been hearing it for about 20 years, um, if everything else is equal and you have two addicts in recovery, the one with lots and lots of pesky codependent relatives is a better candidate for, for achievement of recovery goals. People around you, people who um, mainstream culture would call enablers, codependents, call them what you want, people like that actually enhance somebody's chances of success. That's an interesting um, statement because there's a whole group of folks within the treatment industry that really believe that codependency is an illness in and of itself. Well, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, first of all, you remember, I don't know if, but you know, when the codependency movement first started, they were making statements such as 95% of North Americans are codependent. You remember that? Mm-hmm. That's what they were basically saying. Because the condition is often defined so loosely that it can apply to practically everyone. I want to um, point out that we live in a culture of self-starters. We're individualistic. You know, I was reared on movies that said a man's got to do it for himself. John Wayne and people like that would say things like that. We're supposed to be self-starters. We're supposed to be independent. We live in a civilization that holds independence really high. That's a beautiful thing in many ways. I'm a big fan of Western individualism. However, sometimes it skews our perspective because it is perfectly natural for people to depend on each other. If you go to, um, if you see, especially if you see immigrants, I mean, they come from, some, some of whom come from more traditional cultures. Everybody's always taking care of everybody else. 
the idea that codependency is a problem could only emerge in a society where we assume that you should be emotionally independent. Start. We depend on others for love, for recognition. We depend on others economically. I like to remind my readers, and when I go to talks, I like to remind people that we human beings, we're pack animals. Like dogs and like wolves, we run with a pack. Cats are different. Cats are loners, and you know they're not as friendly to you when they're your pet. They don't hang off of you. But we humans, we are pack animals. We do things in groups. And people who hold emotional independence so high, they're, they're doing it because this way of thinking is consistent with some of the myths our civilization generates. Only an individualistic culture like ours can come up with the idea that you shouldn't depend on others emotionally. Um, I, um... Well, having kind of um, talking about that, um, when we think about people being codependent, there certainly seem to be like extremes where people are um, have no sense of themselves, have no sense of who they are individually, only when they're attached to someone else they have a sense of who they are. And I think that certainly poses challenges to folks. That, that certainly does. Who we are that certainly does. And that is, um, look at it this way. How's this for a model? If you're emotionally dependent on someone in ways that are destructive, that's a problem. But dependency as such is not a problem. It's perfectly natural. We depend on each other. We depend, you know, people in the treatment industry will look you straight in the eye and say something like, I don't want to depend on anything outside of myself, and neither should you. Here's a reality check. We depend on air. We depend on water. We depend on food. We depend on sunshine. To use the term dependence as a pejorative as such is mistaken. Some types of dependence are unhealthy. Attachment to an abusive lover is obviously unhealthy. If you can't break away from someone who keeps stealing your money and spending it at the casino, that's unhealthy. But dependence as such, we depend on families. We depend on each other, whether um, we're celebrating Hanukkah or something else. We depend on each other for recognition somebody wins a gold medal, it only makes sense because other people are aware of it. We are interdependent beings by nature. The codependency movement has had a ha- has maybe started off because certain people were definitely too wrapped up in their partners or in the lives of their children. And yeah, there are some people who take that too far and it can be unhealthy. But very quickly, the codependency movement started saying that 95% or 98% of North Americans are codependent. Does that mean that the whole country needs treatment? Or does it mean that maybe there's something wrong with this codependency movement? I think that um, that's, that's a very interesting perspective because what we've experienced here is that oftentimes families are told that they are the problem and um, I believe that families are part of the solution and that having, having a role in your family is really important. And, and so many treatment places, you know, blame the family or um, they don't give them the tools they need to, to help the person and their family recover. Or, um, and it just seems like there's, there's 
a lot of places are very quick to encourage the family to detach and to separate from the person who's who's really struggling. And your point is well is right on target because all the best evidence we have shows that family involvement is a good thing. Um, you know, here's something. Here's something that surprises people. And it's surprising at first, but when I explain it, it won't be. If you have two individuals who are both entering recovery, and on other measures they're identical, but here are two differences. One is very motivated, the other is not. But the one who's mo- who isn't motivated has lots and lots of social support from family and stuff like that. The one who isn't motivated does not. Fact is that statistically, just statistically, we're talking about odds here, the person with less motivation but more social support is more likely to achieve recovery goals. And that might, some people might find that hard to believe, but there's a reason for it. Motivation um, is not something that typically remains in place. It gets stronger, it gets weaker, it ebbs and flows. One of the best predictors of ongoing motivation or of increasing motivation is social support. Um, when people say that you should, um, you have to recover, it has to be for yourself. Well, very many of the people that you know who have achieved some kind of sobriety, if they're honest, they'll probably tell you that, they'd prob- that they might not have achieved it if they didn't have kids. It's natural for us to do things for other people. The concept of codependency and the whole individualistic approach to treatment is inconsistent with some of the best evidence we have. And we'll be right back with our final segment with Peter after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Today we're talking about addiction and why the 20th century was wrong with our guest, uh, Dr. Peter 
Ferenczi, and let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Peter. He holds a Ph.D. in social and political thought from York University. Um, he has studied and written extensively on Gamblers Anonymous, as well as other issues related to pathological gambling. His two most recent completed studies involve the history of ideas related to addiction with an emphasis on problem gambling, where special attention is paid to the role of the um, metaphoric conceptualization and the construction of scientific Discourse. You'll have to interpret that for us, Peter. And a street-level eth- ethnographic study of gambling patterns among crack users in downtown Toronto. So, um, looks like you were at both ends of the spectrum with your studies. Mm. Well, I think that you were thrown by the metaphoric conceptualization part. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, pretty much right. Yeah. Okay. Um, this, um, I don't know if this is the best topic for a radio show like this one. It might be. You're going to have to tell me. But we we decided there's been a lot of debate about whether or not addictions are real diseases or only metaphorically so. Have you heard any yeah. of that? Uh, a little bit. Okay. Well, I teamed up with someone who did his dissertation on metaphor. And we not only give, offer a history of how ideas evolving pathological gambling, and other addictions evolved. We discussed the role of metaphor. The point is that um, metaphor is used in all aspects of scientific inquiry. For instance, in subatomic physics, you hear about waves and particles. There are really no waves and no particles down there, but that's the best we have. Um, when To this day, when people first started inventing planes, the only model they had was a bird. So to this day, planes are said to have wings and tails. Remember what a wing used to be before there was an airplane. It flopped. I've never seen a plane flop its wings. Um, so we discuss the role of metaphor in the construction of certain addiction concepts. And we point out that um, simply identifying the fact that metaphor is involved does not invalidate them scientifically. Is there some place people could go to learn more about that? Um, um, yeah, you could go to my website if you want, www.peterforenzi.com, and you look at um, my publications. I have one that is in press, and it'll be out in April. So if you grab that title, it's all my articles there. One is in press. Oh, what's the title? Um, oh, on. The title contains the word metaphor, it contains the word religion, it contains the word pathological gambling, and it says impress. It's the only one I have that's impressed. You can find it, and you'll learn more about that. Um, really, what we, um, one of the main things we try to point out is that um, it's a little easy to dismiss disease conceptions of behavior. Um, as unscientific, simply by pointing out to how they borrow ideas from biology and from other disciplines, and how there's some metaphoric application. That applies to all sciences, including the sciences of addiction. Peter, before we um, run out of time, I just wanted to get back to something you said in our first segment, and I think um, when you were talking about how other um, populations have certainly been able to garner um, you know, some recognition for um, equal treatment. Um, I, I like to talk about the fact that when HIV was first um, brought 
forth, and it was di- it was described as a disease of gay men. And I think if ever there was going to be stigma and discrimination against a disease, um, HIV and AIDS would have been the perfect candidate. But that community rallied together. They demanded treatment. They demanded protection under the um, Equal uh, under the American with Disabilities Act, and um, as a result, we have research. We have better treatment for HIV and AIDS, and um, the, we we have prevention that, that's effective. Why do you think that um, the addiction community or, or folks that have uh, addictive disorders? Why do you think they're still on the fringe? Why do you think we're still stigmatizing and discriminating against them? Well. Since the initiation of alcohol prohibition in the early 20th century, which went hand-in-hand with the prohibition of other drugs, we have had a lot invested politically in attacking certain the use of certain substances. Do you remember the drug war, Reagan's drug war in the 1980s? I will remind you, I don't know how old you are if you remember, but I certainly do. I was a young PhD student at the time during the Reagan-Bush years, and I noticed that Typically, traditionally, the United States would send soldiers abroad because of communism, to fight communism. But then all of a sudden, the Soviet Union started to waver. Now the Russians were our buddies. Sending soldiers abroad to fight communism didn't cut it anymore, but in no time flat, they were sending soldiers to Colombia, Panama, and other places. Why? To fight drugs. Issues surrounding racism and social injustice, economic injustice in the ghetto were all blamed on drugs. There's a lot of political baggage behind scapegoating the drug addict. But drug addicts are starting to organize. Drug users, drug addicts in Vancouver and other places actually have societies. They have clubs that they attend. No matter how weird it might seem for drug addicts to organize politically as a group, it's happening as I speak to you. It's taking that's a bit the only longer. Way there's going to be change. Sorry? I, that's the only way there's going to be change. Yes. Um, in, I know I was recently in Vancouver. Um, I was um, the people who ran the Insight Clinic um, funded this, and I did a few talks over there. And I went to this place called Vandu, which is basically a place for drug users. Uh, it's a community center. And I was asked to speak to the rock users society or club, <coughs> basically a club for people who smoke crack. That would have been unthinkable maybe 15 years ago, but it's actually there. Now, some of these people are going to kick, some of them aren't. Many of them are going to cut back slowly. They're going to do whatever they do, but they are organized. Um, I will point out that, um, you know, before we started to make such a big problem out of drug use, your typical opiate addict in 1865 was a white middle-class woman who was more inclined to go to church and bake cookies than to rob people and sell herself. She might have had a problem, yes, but with prohibition and a whole different approach to things, we turned that problem into a catastrophe. Her life back then wasn't a catastrophe. In today's world, it would be. She'd be on the street. Uh, and... Gays were able to organize. They did it very quickly. They did it very efficiently in response to HIV. The process of um, drug addicts getting organized and no longer being a scapegoat for all kinds of things, that's going to take a bit longer, but it is happening as I speak. 
So um, is there anything in the 20th century you think uh, addiction treatment got right? (laughs) Well, the 20th century did try very hard to identify addiction. Um, Since the late 19th century, we probably put more thought into this than any other civilization in history. And that, in a sense, we got right, Tom. The stages for change literature, we got right. Many aspects of, of research on what works, sometimes it's moderation, sometimes it's gradual withdrawal, we got right. Trouble is, the people who got it right were ignored, for the most part. Um, how did the 20th century get it? You know, here's an example that I like to use. Because sometimes the biggest opponents of harm reduction are people who are really interested in AA lore. I don't know if you've read the big book, Mary, have you? Yes, I have. You have, okay. Well, then here's something. Um, Typically, hardcore AA members are opposed to enabling, they're opposed to harm reduction, because they want to see you hit bottom. But if you go, you read some of the personal stories there. And here I'll ask you, don't go any farther than Bill's story. For years, Bill W. struggled with his alcoholism. And his wife was there doing what? Harm reduction. She was doing what they call enabling. And I think that if you read Bill's story, the writing is pr- it's pretty clear that had she not been there enabling him, performing harm reduction, Bill probably would have died before he got a chance to sober up and start AA. Well, I this think is something I like to mention because prods are even AA owes its... Um, existence to enabling and to harm reduction. Well, I think it even you don't even have to read that. You can just read, I think it's Chapter 5, and working with others. And in there, it really clearly outlines um, harm reduction and people, meeting people where they're at and um, taking people for at face value and finding things that interest them so you can approach them the way you would want to be approached. And I think well, that... Um, that a lot of things kind of got skewed along the way. But, Peter, this has been a a very fascinating hour. And um, just before we sign up, can you let people know how to get your book? Well, if you just type in Dealing with Addiction, Why the 20th Century Was Wrong, you'll find it. Or if you go to my website, you might have a little trouble spelling my last name, F-E-R-E-N-T-Z-Y. One person who reviewed my book, said that um, Peter Ferenczi is the only Ph.D. crackhead that Google knows, so he's not hard to find. So if you just type in Ph.D. crackhead, you'll find me. Okay. And you'll find Thank my you book. Thank you so much for spending the hour and for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, Mary, they really aren't that radical. This was a wonderful interview. Okay. Thank you. Thank Have you. a good week, everybody. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.